Are you willing to say tonight when your trial comes up that you'll secure a conviction without the shadow of a doubt? I cannot make a statement which would reflect on Mr. Shaw. Since the day I recharged him and arrested him, I have not made a statement which inferred that he's guilty, and I cannot infer that now. But I am trying to tell you that there is no question as a result of our investigation that an element of the Central Intelligence Agency of our country killed John Kennedy and that the present administration is concealing the facts. There is no question about it at all. That is your opinion. No, it is not. I know it. And if you will just wait, you will see that history will support this as family. Texas, the flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time, some 38 minutes ago. Welcome to the End of Innocence. I'm your host, John Young. Tonight we continue our series on the Jim Garrison investigation and the resulting criminal prosecution of Clay Shaw. Mr. Shaw's case is the only case ever to be brought to trial related to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. Jim Garrison was a giant figure, both literally and figuratively, in the lure and the tale of the JFK assassination. He stood almost 6 feet 7 inches tall, and he was an incredibly imposing man physically with a booming voice and a style of speaking that was filled with conviction. No human being is perfect. Each and every one of us has flaws, and Garrison had his share of them. In this upcoming series of episodes, you'll hear some of those flaws, but nevertheless his decision to pursue the investigation of President Kennedy's death was real, and his pursuit of the truth what happened that awful day in Dallas was genuine. He understood that what happened on November 22, 1963 changed America and all of our lives forever. We have still not recovered from that dark day in November of 63. Jim Garrison was the only person perhaps crazy enough and courageous enough to pursue an investigation and a trial of this nature. 
The assassination itself was a live wire, especially by 1967. The decision of a district attorney to take on this case would be life-changing to say the least. He and his family paid a very dear price for his pursuit. Later in his life, Garrison was asked whether he would do it all over again, and he said no. The personal price that he had paid was too high. The trial of Clay Shaw for the assassination of JFK himself was a stunning failure. A terribly orchestrated series of witnesses that when pieced together failed to prove even the smallest of facts necessary to convict Clay Shaw beyond a reasonable doubt. And the result of his decision to go ahead with the prosecution, which took the jury about an hour to deliberate before they found Shaw not guilty, was a stunning success for the federal government, as it sought to repel the idea that a contract operative of the CIA was responsible for the murder of John Kennedy. The rebuke that would severely damage the credible idea that was now emerging that perhaps a rogue element of the United States government was involved in the assassination and that the event was a genuine coup d'etat, which is an overthrow of the government. Webster's Dictionary describes it as, quote, a sudden, violent, and unlawful seizure of power from a government, end quote. That's exactly what happened when John F. Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas on November 22, 1963, a coup d'etat. It would take almost another decade now after the trial, and more epic events such as Watergate, Nixon's resignation, the wind-down of Vietnam, the Pentagon Papers, the assassination of Bobby Kennedy and Martin Luther King Jr., it would take all that to restoke the fires of conspiracy, restoke them in a credible enough way that the United States government itself would then call for a new investigation of the Kennedy assassination. And yet, as the jury left the courthouse in New Orleans Parish after such a short deliberation, they would eventually reveal that it was easy to find Clay Shaw not guilty, and that Garrison and his team had flatly failed on that account. But many of the jurors were convinced that the president was a victim of the conspiracy, and Garrison and his team's skillful presentation of those facts were eye-opening. Garrison had proved this part of the story beyond a reasonable doubt. It was only a handful of jurors that was given this awesome task of determining the fate of Clay Shaw, and they made the right decision based on the evidence that was presented in a court of law. But they were also given a powerful and unique platform to view a body of evidence and listen to cross-examination never before seen as it relates to the Kennedy assassination. It would be the one and only appearance in a courtroom that the Zerbruder film would make, and they came away many of them with the conclusion that a president was the victim of a conspiracy. Here's a piece from the movie JFK, where Jim Garrison is played by actor Kevin Costner. In this scene, the Zapruder film was being shown to the courtroom for the very first time. It theorizes Garrison's opinion on what happened that day during the shooting, which I believe is far more accurate than the ridiculous Warren Commission theory. Shot. 
and 313 takes Kennedy in the head from the front. This is the key shot. The president going back and to his left. Shot from the front and right. Totally inconsistent with a shot from the depository. Again, back and to the left. Back and to the left. Back and to the left. With all the unintended damage that the Clay Shaw trial brought to the case of finding the truth, it also shed more light on the incredible and almost unbelievable possibilities that might be out there related to the assassination. The idea that the CIA or some element of the CIA could be involved in the killing of a U.S. president. It was a different time back then. Most people trusted that government. That's why I call this podcast The End of Innocence, as I believe that's when this worm started to turn in the eyes of the American public and mistrust for the government began in America. Of course, by the late 60s, there were more and more Americans that thought the Warren Commission ideal of a lone gunman open and shut case was a farce. That the government, from almost the moment of the assassination, had ignored the evidence that pointed to multiple gunmen. But Jim Garrison made sure they got to hear the incredible testimony of Randolph Richard Carr, who was there that day in Dealey Plaza. Testimony that stood up to intense cross-examination and was perhaps the most credible witness of all to testify in any official venue under oath. Mr. Carr brought to light the fact that there was highly credible evidence of others involved that day in Dealey Plaza, and with precision in the courtroom, he chronicled others as they got away that day in the plaza. Richard Randolph Carr was a man that was never called before the Warren Commission, but was now giving testimony in the trial, and there would be attempts on Carr's life after all this. Are you surprised? We shouldn't forget the testimony of Dr. Pierre Fink at the Clay Shaw trial. As you recall from our autopsy episodes, Dr. Fink was one of the three pathologists present at the president's autopsy, and really the only one truly qualified to be involved in such a forensic endeavor. Once upon the stand, he would be caught in a snarl that would give credence to the fact that the autopsy included deception. Deception that would set for 20 to 30 more years before much of the true forensic issues related to the assassination would be uncovered slowly but progressively by private researchers along the way, and then finally by courageous folks like Doug Horn at the Assassinations Records Review Board. Work done after pioneer researchers like David Lifton raised legitimate questions that were never fully answered. But in the bigger picture, the questions pointed only to one thing. If there was a conspiratory element related to the autopsy, it had to be government-induced because only the government was involved in the autopsy. Of course, the largest premise that came from the trial was that Garrison believed most assuredly that Oswald had not fired a rifle that day and that he was truly set up to take the fall, that he was truly the patsy, that he himself had declared as he was shuffled from room to room in front of reporters after his capture that day in Dallas. Whether that is true or not still remains to be seen even 60 years later. One has to ask why Garrison went forth with the trial with such sin evidence in hand, and we'll explore that in detail. But the overarching fact is that the two main players in the conspiracy from Garrison's point of view were Guy Bannister and David Ferry, both of which were clearly linked to Lee Harvey Oswald. But by the time of the trial, they were both dead, both dying in somewhat questionable circumstances, or at least time frames. Bannister not long after the assassination in early 1964, and then Ferry right in the midst of being drawn into the investigation, but before all the indictments were handed out by Garrison. It was a mortal blow to the case, and perhaps was enough right then to shut the whole thing down. 
but Garrison was still optimistic, and to some extent he had been backed into a corner. But he sensed that the window was closing, and that before long there might not be anyone that he could bring to trial. As fast as witnesses were being killed off, they might all be dead. Just like Oswald, just like Ferry, just like Guy Bannister, just like other key witnesses that were needed to prosecute the case, like Lee Bowers, who died mysteriously in a one-car accident on a deserted dirt road in Mithilonian, Texas. Bowers, really just like a whole line of witnesses that were now gone, and Garrison knew that no trial at all in itself would be a tragedy. The trial itself was about revealing the truth, and revealing all the facts to the public and have them stand up in a court of law as being credible enough beyond a reasonable doubt. It was as much about that as it was about convicting any single person. We're going to explore a lot in this next series of episodes, but let me add one more topic to the list, just because it's quite relevant and it deserves more time and attention in this series of episodes. Many over the years have asked a basic question about the investigation. JFK's brother, Bobby Kennedy, was the Attorney General of the United States. There was no one more zealous about putting criminals behind bars than Bobby Kennedy. So why then would such a powerful man fall back into the shadows at the moment of his brother's death and never publicly lead the charge to find the real truth out about who really killed his brother? Publicly, he took a position that supported the general conclusions contained in the Warren Commission. But we know privately, he had a much different view of things. Ultimately, he would conclude that the only credible answer to the real truth behind this question would have to come after he became president because that was the only way in his mind that he would be powerful enough to lead a process that would uncover the truth about what really happened that day in Dallas. Bobby was clearly concerned about the Cuban operation, and the tough stance on organized crime and racketeering had backfired, and that his own actions may have in some ways contributed to his brother's death. It was a terrible burden, and a premise that remains credible to this day. A twisted web of mafia connections, CIA influence, and conspiracy has long cast suspicion on JFK's assassination. Even Attorney General Robert Kennedy had his own idea of who to blame. When President John F. Kennedy's motorcade rode through downtown Dallas on the afternoon of November 22, 1963, no one could have known it would be his last day alive. The 35th president was visiting the city and waving to crowds from a customized Lincoln convertible limousine when he was shot. The photo of First Lady Jackie Kennedy attempting to climb off the convertible as JFK lay slumped over after being shot is an infamous image of events that day. News of his death and how it happened stunned the world, and conspiracy theories about who really did it and why have proliferated ever since. Kennedy was a modern president of sorts and claimed many first titles. On November 8, 1960, he became the youngest American president to be elected and the first Irish Catholic to hold the office. For Gallup, during his short presidency, he was a very popular commander-in-chief and enjoyed some of the office's highest approval ratings. He also came from a large and prominent family in New England politics. Kennedy had eight siblings, and one of them was Robert F. Kennedy, or RFK, who served as U.S. Attorney General under his administration. In the aftermath of John F. Kennedy's assassination, RFK revealed his true feelings about his brother's death and believed that somehow his own aggressiveness against formidable foes as Attorney General led to the death of his brother. A lot of people in the years since Kennedy's assassination have questioned whether Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone. Many doubted that Oswald was someone with the medal or marksmanship to successfully pull off the killing of a sitting U.S. president. When you try to hit a moving target at 88 yards through heavy foliage, no way. 
There was little time to get his side of the story. He was shot to death by a man named Jack Ruby in the basement of a Dallas police station while being transferred to a different jail just two days after the assassination. Investigators felt they had their man in Oswald and never came forth with any other suspects. But RFK was suspicious and questioned if the assassination was retribution for diplomatic decisions by the Kennedy administration. He wondered if his actions as a U.S. Attorney General, in which he went after powerful organizations, may have instigated the killing. According to the Boston Globe, RFK speculated his brother's murder could have been tied to Cuba, the CIA, or the Mafia, even coming to the realization that the three seemingly separate organizations seemed to intertwine in some areas. Robert F. Kennedy once served as chief counsel for the Senate Select Committee on Improper Activities in the Labor or Management Field, which likely made him more enemies than friends. He heavily employed the use of investigative departments to go after organized crime and unions. He made a particular enemy of Teamsters union leader Jimmy Hoffa, whom RFK accused of having a relationship with the Mafia by laundering millions of dollars through union members' pensions funds. According to Time Magazine, Jack Miller, the criminal division chief, once said that RFK, quote, planned a war. It was a fight that the FBI under J. Edgar Hoover was unwilling to initiate, but RFK was up to the task, even though they understood they were going after dangerous people. Appointed by JFK, Bobby was to oversee the CIA's intelligence unit involved with Cuba and its handling of the failed Bay of Pigs invasion. That experience gave him insight into the underbelly of the inner workings between the CIA and some Cuban operatives, and he suspected that bad actors from those groups wanted the Kennedys out of power. Many strange things were happening, and your Lee Harvey Oswald had nothing to do with them. RFK always wondered if his efforts to take down large crime syndicates led to his brother's assassination. According to the Boston Globe, RFK ultimately blamed himself. After learning that John F. Kennedy had been killed, RFK allegedly expressed foreboding. According to the Boston Globe, he told Nade, I knew they'd get one of us. I thought it would be me. Nearly five years later, that prediction came true for Robert Kennedy when he, too, was shot to death in an assassination. Bobby would eventually entrust only one person in this quest to begin this investigation. It was a close confidant of the Kennedy family, a man that he had locked arms with in the struggle against Jimmy Hoffa and the Teamsters, and his name was Walter Sheridan. But the real frontal thrust of the investigation would have to wait, and it would go into high gear only after Bobby himself had attained the highest office in the land, and at that moment, that was not likely to be before 1972. After all, everyone expected two full terms out of Lyndon Johnson. But with the surprise of Johnson's decision to not run in 1968, that changed the calculus. It now looked like it might be 1968. But the world was fast moving, and it wasn't waiting for Bobby Kennedy to get his presidential campaign, and so it went in New Orleans. So as Garrison got started in his own journey to find out what happened to President Kennedy, Walter Sheridan was dispatched to New Orleans to figure out whether or not Garrison really had anything or not. Walter Sheridan would quickly conclude that Jim Garrison was not credible for reasons that we will explain in the episodes to come, and he would then in a simple thumbs up or thumbs down way tell Bobby Kennedy that Garrison was foe and not friend. Bobby Kennedy needed to win the presidency, and then he would pursue the investigation of his brother's death. Bobby could not control the outcome here or the narrative, no matter how much he might have wanted anyone, including Garrison, to find the truth. This is perhaps one of the most tragic decisions of the story surrounding Jim Garrison. At a critical moment when Bobby might have helped and not hindered Garrison's investigation, he chose otherwise based primarily on Sheridan's advice. There is no doubt that Garrison uncovered much of the truth about what happened that day in Dallas, and he may have even been close to solving the case. Only a portion of what they knew in the New Orleans investigation would make it to trial. 
There was much more to the Garrison investigation than anything that saw the light of day at the trial. That was how Garrison knew so much. A curious and simple question we all ask ourselves is how did he blow it? But again, we'll leave that to other episodes. Walter Sheridan would go to work for NBC and mastermind an investigative episode that would pick apart Garrison's case. An NBC show that many may have thought was manipulated by the CIA against Garrison, but ironically it had nothing to do with the CIA's position on things. It had everything to do with Bobby Kennedy and Walter Sheridan and their decision to label Garrison as a foe. The CIA was a willing beneficiary, so to speak, in this maneuver to destroy Garrison's credibility on national television. The national media frenzy would eventually require NBC to provide equal time to Garrison to make his case and tell his story, and he did. We listened to Garrison's rebuttal in last week's episode, so if you missed it, go back and listen to episode 44. Jim Garrison is surely a controversy unto himself. A controversy within a controversy. Uh, Even many people who think that he was absolutely correct about the assassination and the conspiracy behind it uh, think that Garrison was a wild man and that he he did more harm than good. I can see the reasons for the complaints. I've uh, looked at them fairly closely because I've done a study of Garrison. I come out of it thinking that he's one of the really first-rate class act heroes of this whole ugly story, which suffers so badly for heroes. 